Hey, true crimies. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome back, everyone. We are so glad that you're here and that you clicked on our show today. We have absolutely loved hosting this show for you guys and bringing you stories that need to be heard. We love being that voice for those that no longer have one. Today's story is a big one. So let's jump right into it. Are you ready for today's case? Okay, guys, so this case is going to be at least a two-parter, honestly, maybe a three-parter, hopefully not, but we are finally doing it. So, Mom, can you guess what we are going to talk about? (laughs) Okay, nope. (laughs) You have no guesses. It's a big case. It's going to take at least two parts. Lori Daybell? Yep. Uh (laughs) Oh, You got it. Okay. This story makes me mad. Oh my gosh. I know. She's the worst. I think I'm just mad right now because they're not doing anything to her because she's claiming she's insane. Oh, I know. She's like using it to get out of her trial right now. It's so frustrating. Yeah. So what I'm going to do, like I said, we're talking about the doomsday mom, Lori Vallow, and her most recent husband, Chad Daybell. And all of the mysterious deaths that have happened around the couple. And we know this is an infamous case. I'm sure pretty much everyone listening has heard of this case. And it blew up back in 2019. And it's just gotten crazier as we learn more. Now, I thought this would be interesting for us to give a take on it first. Because Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell were arrested and are being held just north of me in Rexburg, Idaho. Rexburg is only about a 20-minute drive from my house. And then second, a lot of talk in this case surrounds the church that Lori and Chad claimed as their religion, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which a lot of people refer to as Mormon. Now, what's funny to me about literally any case that has any connection to this religion is that like some of the statements are just so far out there and really kind of absurd. So I thought it would be kind of interesting to dive into some of those comments surrounding a case like this because you're Mormon, your whole family is Mormon, my most of my dad's family is, most of my husband's family is, and just like a crap load of people we know are Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> and I grew up going to the church. And so I also have a pretty good basic understanding of it. And we just live in this area where it's heavily populated with this religion. So the general public around here kind of has a deeper understanding about it more than a lot of places in the world. And when I look into a case that has anything to do with the church, like let's say one person 
in the case is Mormon, there are always tons of theories surrounding that. And they're usually like way far out there and kind of crazy. So I thought we, especially you, could actually give some real insight into certain comments or theories. Yeah, well, she is just an extremist. As we'll learn, she's not actually Mormon, but that's just kind of what she grew up in. And yeah, I just think it will be interesting to kind of like make the, I don't know, make make it make sense. Yeah, we can try. But she honestly has like way out there beliefs that the Mormons don't believe. <laughs> yes, that's just what they claim. Yeah. That they were in, you know, and then they obviously go way off on some sort of tangent that no one knows what's happening. Now, like I said, this is a case that basically everyone probably knows about, but it has so many layers. It's confusing. It's all over the place. So what I wanted to do was start with one of the main players and go back to the very beginning. I'm going to follow a straight timeline on Lori's life and talk about each person as they come into play on the timeline. So hopefully this puts a lot of the events in Lori's life into somewhat of a straightforward presentation. And with that, we can really dissect how Lori ended up with two dead children buried in her most recent husband's backyard, along with the many other deaths that have seemed to follow her. Her brother, her ex-husband. Right, like everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here we go. On June 26, 1973, Lori Noreen Cox was born in San Bernardino, California, to her parents, Barry and Janice Cox. Barry Cox married Janice Connor eight years before Lori was born, on November 19, 1965. Lori had three sisters and two brothers, although once Lori was born, only two of those sisters were living. Lori's sister that was born just before Lori, Laura Lee Cox, died at only two months old. Laura had been born two years before Lori came along, on June 24, 1971, and she unfortunately died on August 5th that same year, 1971. And I actually feel pretty horrible for Lori's parents, Barry and Janice, because as you'll see in the story, they have had to deal with a lot of heartache and loss with their children. And it's unfortunate that Lori's evil ideas literally play into more than half of their losses. But we'll get into all of that. Mm. Did their little baby die of SIDS? I mean, it didn't say what from, but I guess can we assume that? She was two months old. I, I mean, that's what I would assume, but there could be lots of other reasons. I'm not sure why, but I thought that was so sad. So Lori's oldest sibling was born on June 17, 1966, just one year after their parents married. This was Stacy Lynn Cox. And then Lori's oldest brother was born, Alexander Lamar Cox, who was born on January 18, 1968. Most people refer to him as Alex, and we will see that he plays a giant role in this story. After Alex is born, Lori's second brother, Adam Cox, is born on April 4th, 1969, just before Laura and then Lori. 
two years after Lori is born, her youngest sibling is born on September 23rd, 1975. Summer Novell Cox. So Lori grew up in a seemingly happy and big family that was super close. Her parents were explained as being devout Mormons. So she did grow up going to church every Sunday and attending different church events, as well as attending seminary before school throughout her high school years. Now, seminary, don't you think most people know what that is? It's basically like a church class for high school-aged kids. Yeah. Right? They go and learn about different topics. Um, In Utah, they offer it as a school class during school. Right. We took it during school. It's not like a school credit, but you can take like a it's an elective yeah you can take like a free credit that hour and then you just go to a separate building right outside of the school and you go and have this class so but i'm i assume that a lot of places do do seminary before school don't you think if they have a smaller population of mormon people yes so it makes sense that Lori would go before school and then she would go to her regular high school after So Lori attended Eisenhower High School in Rialto, California, and she loved it. She was a bombshell. She felt like she was popular and she made friends easily. Lori decided to try out for the Eisenhower High School cheerleading squad. And during tryouts, Lori killed it, not only with talent, but with her personality as well. She made a lot of new friends and people seemed drawn to her. One of these friends was Bernadette Flores Lopez. From that first day they tried out together until they graduated, they remained friends and enjoyed their time together on the team. Bernadette loved going over to Lori's house. Barry and Janice would always let Lori invite the cheer team over to their home for some team bonding swimming days, and the girls would play in the pool, they would lay out tanning, and they would just laugh all day. Lori was not only beautiful, but she was also really smart. She maintained good grades in school, and she always told Bernadette about how she wanted to attend Brigham Young University, which is down in Provo, Utah, just about 40 minutes south of where you live, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. But as Lori got into her senior year of high school, she started to fall for a boy. She had always been independent and spent most of her high school years hanging out with her girlfriends and focusing on her school and on her cheer team, but she couldn't help but get lost in the eyes of Nelson Lanes. As graduation approached, Nelson and Lori grew closer and closer. They both graduated from Eisenhower High School in 1991. Bernadette told Insider Edition that she thought Lori's path after high school was guided by her faith. Quote, being a Mormon, this is what I got from her. They already knew she was going to be a missionary for a couple years and serve. She already had a plan, end quote. But regardless of Bernadette's thoughts as to what Lori was doing after high school, Lori did not go on a mission after graduation, which is completely normal. Like, in the Mormon religion, you do not have to go on a mission. You have the option to go on one. It wasn't super popular for girls to be going. It's a lot more common now. Yeah, and it's still more common. But back, back then, girls had to wait until they were... 21, right? Um, Like 21, yeah. 
I even feel like it's still even more common for boys to go. Yeah, but a lot more girls are headed out now, too. But it's still, like, not a requirement for boys or for girls. It's just something that they can choose to do. And so I think it was really normal for Lori to not go on a mission. I don't necessarily think it would be a disappointment to her family. Like, it doesn't affect your standing with the church at all. But with that being said, some parents may push it themselves and have expectations of their children to go. But that will really vary family to family. So I don't, I'm not sure what Lori's parents' expectations were. And her mom has said a few things, actually, that sort of catch me off guard that we'll talk about through the episode. And her family is described as being very, very religious. So they may be a family that chooses to sort of take things to the extreme. But I know that Lori didn't go and I'm not really sure how her family felt about it, but I don't think it was a big deal. And I do know that Lori's brother, Alex, did go on a mission. And I'm just mentioning that because he does play a big role in this story. And I don't remember exactly where it was, but I know he went somewhere in the United States. And I saw this on a Facebook post I am in where one of his mission companions, which is basically just one of the guys that he lived with and would go do things with, he actually commented on a Facebook page that's all about this case and said that Alex was his mission companion and he was super shocked by this whole story. Huh. So I just, I thought that was interesting. So like I said, Lori did not go on a mission herself regardless of what people thought she may do. And she also did not attend college at Brigham Young University like she talked about. Lori instead continued to pursue her relationship with Nelson Lanes, which was her high school sweetheart. They were young and in love, but Lori's friend Bernadette says that Nelson was not Mormon and she feels like that may have caused contention between Lori and Nelson leading to divorce. And I think it's totally possible to have a relationship with someone that doesn't share your beliefs, but I think Lori was super, super crazy And I don't think she would handle this well. Because as we'll see, it's a pattern with her that she makes all of her husbands join the church. Like it's almost not an option for them. So I don't think most people are like that. But Lori, as we know, is just very crazy. So I think it was really all about what she wanted, how she saw things, and... I use that word force because Lori gave them no option. Like if they loved her, then she they would do what she wanted. And it's really honestly ironic that Lori does force this as like being not an option because as we'll see and as we kind of talked about earlier, Lori goes completely unhinged down this destructive path of a completely different non-related religion, if that's what we even want to call it, that is totally disconnected from the Mormon church. And honestly, my opinion is that Lori uses religion as a manipulation tool to make herself look like she's doing better than she is, like she's a really good person. I think she uses it to fall back on for the horrible choices she's made. And I don't think she's really... Like, we know she's obviously not. That's 
obviously not really what she believes in because then she wouldn't be killing people. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Lori and Nelson had married in 1992, but they divorced soon after. And remember, Nelson is that high school sweetheart of hers. And there is not a lot of information as to how long this marriage lasted, which leads me to believe it was over and done with pretty quickly after starting. And Lori was the one who filed for divorce. Thankfully, they had no children together and they were able to make a clean split. Nelson has kept quiet about his life with Lori and he has not spoken out about his ex-wife and what she has become. Lori would have been about 19 years old when she married Nelson. In an interview Janice Cox did, she talks about how Lori left the home soon after graduation when she was 18 years old. And Barry and Janice asked Lori to at least wait one year before making a decision to marry her high school sweetheart, Nelson. And then she goes on to say, quote, But they just went off and decided to do their own thing and got married. And so we didn't go to the wedding, end quote. And this is one of those statements that sort of caught me off guard. Like, did they not go to the wedding because they were mad that Lori didn't wait a year like they wanted? If so, that's super messed up. Like, go to your daughter's wedding no matter what. She made that choice to get married. But then as I was writing this, I was thinking, could it mean that Lori went off and did her own thing and she didn't invite her family to the wedding? That's what it sounds like to me. Okay. Like she eloped or something and they didn't know. When I first heard it, I was like, oh, you didn't want to go to her wedding. But then I kind of thought that too after I started writing like, okay, well, maybe Lori didn't invite them. She probably knew they wouldn't be that happy about it. her getting married so young and not going to BYU or going off to college, you know? Yeah. So she might have just gone off, done it on her own, and then been like, I'm married. Yep. (laughs) And maybe that made them sad that they didn't have the chance to attend Lori's wedding. I mean, what if she had stayed married to this guy? But we know that she didn't. In fact, her family would have ample opportunity to go to one of the many other weddings that Lori would have. (laughs) (laughs) After her split from Nelson, Lori decides to move out of California where she grew up and go to Texas. Just three years after Lori married Nelson, she would find love again in a man named William LaGoya. William and Lori married on October 22, 1995, when Lori was 22 years old and William was 23. The couple was married in Austin, Texas, but This love story was also very short-lived, and the couple would divorce just one year after jumping into marriage together. Divorce documents show that Lori states the couple was living together on and off for four years before they got married. Well, four years before William and Lori got married, it was 1991. Lori married Nelson Lanes in 1992. So either Lori is incorrect about the amount of time they dated before getting married or she was seeing William while she was with Nelson. Yeah. Who knows? Did that relationship, is that what took her to Texas? That's what I was thinking. Like, since she says that they were living together on and off for four years, it's like, 
was she, was she seeing him when she was married to Nelson and with Nelson? And maybe that's why their marriage ended quickly. And then she goes out to Texas to be with this guy. I don't know. Kind of sounds like it to me. Could be. That seems like a pattern. Yes, it really does. <laughs> oh, Lori. So in her affidavit, she talks about how during the time that the couple had been together, William was abusive mentally and physically. Quote, on two different occasions, I had to call for police protection and have him arrested for assault and battery. We were separated in February of 1996 due to this abuse. He went to jail in Austin, Texas. I was pregnant during the last physical assault and battery when he threatened to snap my neck and kill the baby if I ever called the police again to have him arrested, end quote. On July 16, 1995, charges were filed against William LaGoya for assault with injury. Lori had stated that William hit her in the mouth and threw her onto the bed, and the responding officer did know a small cut on Lori's upper lip on the inside of her mouth. On February 13, 1996, Lori filed a restraining order against William. During Lori's marriage to William, she was pregnant with her first son, who she named Colby Cox. She gave him her last name because by the time she was pregnant, Lori and William were already having problems. The couple separated and got back together multiple times before ultimately deciding to call it quits. Throughout the divorce, William asked the court to require a paternity test because he believed there was a strong possibility that the baby, Colby, was not his. Lori did not list a father on Colby's birth certificate, but as far as I can tell at this point, it does seem that William is Colby's father. I am not sure if the two have anything to do with each other. It seems that they don't because I know Colby grew up primarily with Lori as a single mother and her third husband, Colby, ultimately takes his name. After their initial split, Lori did get back together with William and then her son is born. Lori's mom, Janice, says, quote, we weren't in favor of him even though he was Colby's father, end quote. Colby Jordan Cox was born on April 8, 1996 in Austin, Texas, and after he was born, Lori decided to get back with William. What's the name? Of her kid? Yeah. Colby Jordan Cox. What's the first name? <laughs> For I don't know if I can't hear you good or... Colby. <laughs> Colby. Colby? C-O-L-B-Y. Oh, Colby. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So in Lori's divorce document, she states, quote, In July of 1996, my husband, William LaGoya, called me and asked me to come to Brackettville, Texas, where he was living with his parents, to attend his family baptism into my church. During our relationship, I prayed that he would accept my religion, repent of his carnal, selfish, and sensual behavior, and become a Christian, end quote. Which, Jeez. that just seems weird, doesn't it? Like That was in her divorce document? Yes. And that's kind of where I say, like, I think she really, really pushed them getting baptized into the Mormon religion. Not because, I don't think it was because she really, truly was in it, because she obviously wasn't. 
but like it was like something she seemed like she held over them. Repent of his carnal, selfish, and sensual behavior and become a Christian. Like, I can't see anybody saying that. I know. That's just like a weird statement. So weird. And like I said from the beginning, I don't think Lori was ever a good person. So I take everything she says with a grain of salt. Now, I don't know what Lori and William's relationship was like. He very well could have been abusive and that's not okay and it's disgusting. Of course, I want to believe everyone when they are describing any sort of domestic violence or assault that they've been through. And I do believe them. I just find it harder to believe people who murder two of their children, multiple other people, and have a pattern of lying and manipulating situations to fit their narrative. Yes. (laughs) So. Agreed. You know, I'm going to give you what she says and what she puts in the documents, but I mean, I'll go on the record and say I don't fully believe the things that Lori says. There are definitely other sides to the story. Yes, I agree with that. On December 4th, 1996, Lori files another complaint against William, and this complaint is for auto theft, larceny, false imprisonment, false imprisonment, conspiracy with intent to defraud creditor, perjury, concealment of stolen property, and obstruction of justice. Which, like, whoa. She says that William knowingly and intentionally conspired to, quote, defraud me into quitting my job where I earned 45000 annually to come and live with him and his parents where he would work and take care of us. He took advantage of my good faith, my charity, and my vulnerable situation, end quote. She sounds so weird. <laughs> she sounds out of it way back then. Yeah. Like a lot of people want to think that Lori got crazy when she met Chad Daybell, who we probably won't talk about until part two. But no, like Lori, she was having these thoughts and she had something inside of her from the beginning, (laughs) in my in my personal opinion. Lori says that soon after she moved back in with William, that he took her keys to her car and wouldn't let her leave. Quote, he kept me imprisoned at his residence, end quote. And then in November of 1996, Lori saw an opportunity to make her ex- her escape as she explains it. Quote, in early November, while William was passed out drunk after a one night stand with a new girlfriend, I escaped and left at 4 a.m. with my child, end quote. Lori says she left and drove straight to her parents' home And then for the next two weeks, she became William's everything. You know, the typical story in a toxic relationship. As soon as you leave, they need you. So William was calling Lori every day, begging her to come back. He told her that they could go to church. They could work things out. And so she does it. She goes back to William again. Lori says that she went back to William because she had good faith and she was desperate for help with their son. And she truly believed that he would change. Once she was back in the home with William, his mother, and his stepfather, she realized that this was not her forever home. She was not happy here. At this point, Lori states that she requested to leave, but, quote, 
I felt threatened and imprisoned again, end quote. Which one of the weird things I got out of that whole thing was like, so you left him in the middle of the night after he had a one night stand with a new girlfriend, (laughs) but like you were imprisoned there. So was he dating? Was he cheating on you? Were you guys together? Were you not? Are you doing all of this? Like in trying to take him down because he cheated on you? Possibly. I wouldn't say that about normal people, but she is literally unhinged. I think people wonder too sometimes why people that are in situations like that go back. Oh, for sure. I heard from somewhere that it takes seven, like the average is seven times of people leaving. It takes a lot of times for people to leave. So yes, like Lori could keep going back to someone who is literally abusing her. William could be a total a-hole and we can't discount that or the thing she says. Just on the flip side, I just don't know what to think about what she says because she has done such evil things. It's like, I don't trust you, girl. (laughs) I just don't. Now, at this point, when she wants to leave again, She says that it wasn't just William abusing her. Now she says that his stepfather, her father-in-law, was also abusing her. She claims that he was becoming violent and making verbal threats against her life. He told her that she could leave, but that she couldn't take the baby. Lori then lays out in her affidavit everything that William did that has led her to her decision to divorce him. Quote, William also used my baby's welfare card for his own personal expenses. I must be a slow learner because I finally realized William was a liar. He has no respect for God, for truth or the law. He and his stepfather have a core of beliefs and their own rules of life that are antisocial and despicable. They have no consciousness of guilt for wrongdoing. They believe they can lie and cheat and conspire to do evil or break the law and get gain without any consequences. Their behavior towards me is unconscionable. End quote. Then Lori goes on to write how William ruined her credit and that her father-in-law was out of control. She makes big claims like William and his stepdad were trying to defraud the finance company that her car loan was through. And I'm not sure how that would work since Lori had her car repossessed due to late payments, which she also blames on William as well. Quote, he is void of consciousness of right or wrong and lacks any virtue of good character. His lifestyle is similar to a pathological liar and a sociopath. He is unemployed and unskilled and has no marketable skills. He lacks integrity and or any desire to accomplish or live a worthwhile or productive life. My family has been patient and kind to him and have offered him help and made gifts to him to see if he could get the message and example of human kindness. However, William is void of any light and intelligence to know the difference between right or wrong. End quote. And her statements kind of freak me out because this is how she talks about literally everyone that she doesn't want in her life anymore. Don't you think that's weird? I mean, 
if you don't know this story, you won't think this is weird till later. But I mean, they talk about how people are light or dark. And she is saying years before she ever meets Chad, William is void of any light. Yeah. Like what? You are scary. (laughs) It just sounds weird that she's putting that in a divorce. Oh, yeah. She laid it all out there. It's like, you are being so extra. I don't think you need to put all of that in your divorce, right? Yeah, it's like, just, you know, get to the point, like, why do you, why are you getting a divorce? You're not, I mean, you don't, <laughs> I mean, people don't usually say, because my husband doesn't have any light about him. Yeah, and like, I don't think the court cares if your husband loves God or not. Right. Like she's like, he doesn't love God. He he lacks integrity. It's like he desire he lacks any desire to accomplish anything. It's like I don't think the court cares. He has no marketable skills. <laughs> I, that was pretty <laughs> harsh. <laughs> I know. She's so rude. <laughs> and it's like if he was abusing her, I mean I would be rude about him too. Literally, her comments in this are just like, I just see it as a pattern with every single husband she has, every single person she wants out of her life. It's like they become this like evil, horrible, like not worth anything person to her. Yeah. Now, Lori filed this affidavit and the divorce papers on December 17th, 1996. And this was eight months after Colby was born. William's response to these claims just said, quote, general denial, end quote. (laughs) So he basically was just generally denying all of it. He kept it to the point. He's probably like, what a psycho. Okay, I deny all of it. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't know what to say. None of it's true. And this is when he also asks for that paternity test to be required by the court. And on December 17th of that same year, so just five days after she filed for divorce, she also filed an affidavit of inability, unable to pay court costs. So Lori testified with this that she was unemployed and that she had no credit and no credit cards. She was $5,000 in debt and she says that her spouse had been unemployed as well. Her monthly income included $292 in food stamps and $198 from aid to families with dependent children. And this money was given to her as cash to go straight to living expenses. And this was through a welfare program that Lori was on. And then on February 25th, 1998, about a year and a half after Lori filed for divorce, the divorce was finalized. And then only three months after Lori's divorce from William, her sister Stacy passed away from complications relating to her diabetes on May 21st, 1998. And Stacy is the mom of Melanie Pawlowski, Pawlowski, which is Lori's niece, who also plays a big role in this story later on. And Lori's brother, Adam Cox, wrote a book called my crazy radio life. In this book, he details the death of his sister, saying that she, quote, suffered from a rare form of diabetes type one that she contracted during her pregnancy at age 22. 
Her style of diabetes was called gastroparesis, which prevented her from absorbing nutrients from her stomach into her bloodstream. When Stacy passed away while I was in Arkansas, a part of me passed away also, end quote. So she ultimately passed away from that. And now this is just a really random kind of crazy fact, but that book that I got that quote from, My Crazy Radio Life, Lori's brother Adam wrote this book because he was investigated in 2007 for the death of a woman. This woman had participated in a contest on the radio show that Adam Cox hosted. So he hosted the morning rave show on KDNDFM, and he was also known as Lucas and Bo Nasty. <laughs> so the sh- is is this in California? No, I think this was in Arkansas. Oh, Arkansas. Okay. Now the show held a contest called "Hold Your Wee for a Wee." So we, as in W E E. For a we, as in W-I-I. So basically, contestants were drinking large amounts of water, and then they had to attempt to hold it in without puking or peeing. And whoever held it the longest would win a Nintendo Wii. That day, Jennifer Lee Strange participated. She was 28 years old, and she would die later that day due to water intoxication. Adam Cox, along with nine other radio station employees, were fired for this, and he was investigated, but no criminal charges ever came from this. Adam says that the radio management had approved the contest, and the employees were just hosting it. Quote, During the contest, a few listeners called into the show and said that this kind of activity could be dangerous. One of the callers said she was a nurse. Our show was fun, It was a playful show and sometimes even sarcastic humor. At this point during the show, we did not have the authority or any direction to stop the contest, end quote. Adam and other radio show employees made a lot of jokes to Jennifer about her protruding belly, how she looked pregnant after drinking all that water, and Jennifer tells the employees that her head was starting to hurt. And that's when Adam tells her, Quote, this is what it feels like when you're drowning. There's a lot of water inside you. End quote. Literally. Literally. But he didn't say that actually knowing. Obviously, he didn't understand the true dangers about what was happening. And later on, he would find out from his boss that Jennifer died that day. And he said that he cried a lot thinking about one of their loyal listeners dying because of the contest that they held. The station was found liable for Jennifer's death and awarded $16.5 million. The station surrendered their license and went off air in 2017. And I just thought that was a really random extra fact to this story that Lori's brother was related to this death. It wasn't his fault. He didn't know the risk, but she really was felled by the whole situation. It was absolutely it's just like a devastating thing to know that this happened to Jennifer Strange and I wanted to throw her name in here and let it be known that she died a death that was unjust and should not have happened isn't that so sad like do people not know you can die from drinking too much water don't do that that is sad 
Water intoxication. I know. I wonder why they didn't know that. I know. I first learned about it with having kids because I read, you know, you can't just obviously give them a bottle full of water without formula in it because people have done that and then their baby dies because of water intoxication because babies can drink so much water. Right. So that's how I learned about it. But so I, I, it seems like common sense. But what bothered me a little was that people were calling in saying it was dangerous. And they're like, well, we don't have, you know, we don't know how to stop the contest. Right. It's like, just, just stop it. Just say like, hey, could this be dangerous? Let's look it up. Let's check it out. Oh, it's dangerous. Okay. We can't do this. Oh, you already drank a lot of water. Maybe go to the hospital because this is actually not dangerous. Not not safe. That's that's too bad. I mean, obviously he didn't mean to do it, but so. No, I don't think anyone meant for someone to die, but they're just there definitely could have been different steps taken by I don't know if it was like not specifically him, but just like everybody. I don't know. But after Lori's sister passed away, Lori lays low for a couple of years after her divorce and she feels a bit defeated at this point she is almost 25 years old and she has already been divorced twice she was kind of over the idea of a man and she needed to be single so she took the next couple years to work on herself after Lori graduated high school she got her cosmetology license and worked as a hairstylist like me I have my cosmetology license. I feel like I've been doing it forever. It's been like eight years. Yeah. Time goes by really fast. But I don't really want to compare myself to Lori at all. So, <laughs> thankfully, I don't do hair anymore. I do lashes. So not like Lori at all. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to do with her. I'm sure all the millions of hairstylists out there aren't like her either. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I also actually, I'll just say this now. If you don't know this story, you'll see that Lori ma- marries a horrible person named Chad Daybell. But um, me and him have the same birthday. Oh. <laughs> so, so that sucks. Puts a damper on my birthday. Just don't think about it. <laughs> I can't help it. So after a couple of years... Lori does have her eyes set on love again. She had been dating Joseph Ryan and the couple decided to marry in Maui, Hawaii on March 17th, 2001, which you guys, we are like basically from Maui, Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, our Hawaiian pride. (laughs) So that's where my great grandma, my mom's grandma is from. We have family there. We are not really basically from there. Actually, our husband, well, my husband always gets annoyed of me saying that I'm basically from Hawaii because I think I'm only like 8%. But we basically are. (laughs) Yeah, our great grandma is like full Hawaiian. (laughs) We're part of the Pelikai Ohana from Maui. Yep. So regardless of our percentage. We make sure to tell everybody that we're pretty proud of that Hawaiian blood. Even though we have a lot yes, more we are. blood probably from England. <laughs> we love the Hawaiian culture and we <laughs> identify with that part of ourselves more. <laughs> <laughs> so as we'll see, a lot of this story does end up taking place in different parts of Hawaii as well. So Joe was 15 years older than Lori. He was born in November of 1958 
during this marriage is when Lori had her second child, a daughter. Is she still in Texas at this time? Yes. Lori is still in Texas at this time, but they're, you know, they got married in Hawaii. I think that was just a little trip. Like, what is that called? A destination wedding. Yep. But she's living in Texas with her husband, Joe. And they have their daughter, and her name is Tylee Ashlyn Ryan. Tylee was born on September 24th, 2002, and Joe was so happy to have this new family. Lori brought in that first son, Colby, who Joe doesn't actually officially adopt, but Colby does take Joe's last name, and this is why we know Colby today as Colby Ryan, because Lori had his last name changed from Cox, her maiden name, to Joe's last name, Ryan. So Joe had a hard childhood and growing this family with Lori was a dream come true for him. He had been born in Connecticut and was the oldest of five siblings. His younger sister was Annie Ryan. And after Annie was born, the children were taken out of custody of their parents by the state and they were all separated and put into different foster homes. This was a traumatizing event for all the kids, and it's what fueled Joe's desperation to have a, air quotes, typical family. When Joe was in his early 20s, he organized a Thanksgiving dinner for all of his siblings, and it was like super important to him to have a Thanksgiving with his family since they never really had that growing up in separate homes. And he wanted a wife and kids at this point, but he ends up staying single throughout his 20s and 30s until that day that he met what he believed to be the love of his life, Lori Cox. Lori would be Joe's first wife and Joe would be Lori's third husband. Third time's a charm, right? Not really in this case. Nope. (laughs) Not at all. So after Joe proposes to Lori, she says yes, but again, it has conditions. She only says yes if he converts to the LDS church. Remember, in the beginning, I said that she forced each man she married to be in the church in order to be with her. Now, I don't think someone wanting their partner to be in it is forcing it. I just, I I think Lori's crazy. (laughs) It's like there's plenty of people that convert without being forced into it. Right. Yeah. I mean, who knows? They they may love her and like, okay, yeah, I'll do it for you, for us. Well, yes. And honestly, they might find like peace in it and they, you know, they really may have liked it. I just think the way they got there was because Lori was really pushing that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they didn't like being in it or anything. I just, I don't think anyone knew Lori was so crazy. (laughs) Uh, We should count how many times you say that she's crazy in this episode. I should. (laughs) (laughs) She is crazy. I just do not like her at all. I do not like her. Where am I at? She's crazy. She is. That's where you were at. Uh, So Lori and Joe's romance was a fast one and they married very quickly after meeting and right away, Lori was pregnant with Tylee. On ABC 2020, Janice Cox, Lori's mom, says, quote, one reason Lori had wanted to get married was to have another baby. 
She got pregnant with Tylee right away. She was excited about having Tylee, end quote. Did this guy by chance have a lot of money? He was a businessman, so I do think he had more money than her previous husbands. Plus, he was 15. Because he was quite a bit older than her. Yeah, he was 15 years older than her. So I think he was more well established. And honestly, in my opinion, I do think Lori oftentimes has a financial motive. At least with her third husband on. Yes. And Joe loved Tylee so much. She was his world. He thought that Tylee looked just like him. But Joe's sister, Annie, says that Tylee looked nothing like him. Everyone would just pretend that he did that she did because his daughter looking like him made him super happy. So after Joe and Lori bought a home, Annie came for a visit. She could kind of already tell that the marriage was having problems. Joe did have a temper. I mean, he had grown up in the foster care system and he served in the Navy. His life was not easy. And because of that, I don't know what demons he battled. Soon after Annie arrived, it started to rain, and as they're sitting there in the living room, water starts to drip onto the floor. The roof was leaking inside the home, and this really embarrassed Joe. He totally loses it. He starts punching the walls and letting out the F-bomb in front of all the kids and in front of everybody, and this whole experience made his sister Annie really uncomfortable. And she would actually never talk to or visit Joe ever again. They started an estrangement. And at this point, Annie does regret this because although Joe did overreact in that moment, he was overall a good guy whose life will eventually end very suspiciously. Lori and Joe would only stay married for three years, but before the couple decides to split, Lori does a pageant in 2004. This pageant was the Texas Beauty Queen pageant. And at the time, she was a mother of two, which look, everyone always dogs on pageants. I've heard so many bad things about pageants, specifically in podcasts. (laughs) And a little fun fact is that my mom actually forced me to do a pageant in high school It was called The Distinguished Young Woman, and then I loved it, and I went on and did three other pageants, and I actually won one. So really, you guys are talking to Miss Southeastern Idaho. (laughs) I don't remember of what year. (laughs) And it helped pay for school. You got scholarships. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, because I, I do get why people diss on them, like from the outside. I'm sure there are even a lot of pageants that are shallow. I can kind of see how people are like, oh, it's for the looks and your body and wearing makeup and dresses. But in my experience, I truly learned how to interview like a pro. That is one of the best skills that I got out of this. Like my mom said, I got my whole first year of college paid for with the money I won. So I mean, even though I didn't finish college, but my point is that they are not as shallow like as they seem to be from the outside. You'd agree, right? Yes, but that's another thing you have in common with her. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I know. I need to stop (laughs) comparing myself to Lori, who I hate, (laughs) who I think is crazy. (laughs) And I don't know, Lori may have had shallower intentions with her pageant, 
because her mom actually says that Lori worked really hard to get the perfect shape, which I mean, it shouldn't really be the point, but there is a swimming suit section. So I can see how you would want to prioritize that. If I'm walking around in a swimsuit, I would want to feel my best as well. I mean, look, she's a pretty lady. She is. She seemed to have people like would flock to her. She had really good presence. Right. Um, so, yeah, she would do well probably at a pageant. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. She knows how to talk to people. She knows how to get people. Oh, yeah. Drawn into her. Exactly. She pretty. has that skill. So... She was made for the pageant life, I guess. <laughs> Lori was described as someone who really craved having that attention and loved to be the center of attention. And when she did this pageant, she was in it as Lori Ryan because instead of Lori Cox, because we know she's married to Joe Ryan at this point. And during Lori's interview, she is asked, what makes you tick? And Lori answers, quote, Being a good mom is very important to me and a good wife and a good worker. And being all those things is not easy. So I'm basically a ticking time bomb, end quote. At the time, Lori said this with a laugh, but looking back, we will know that this is eerie foresight into what would come. And Lori must have won a previous pageant in order to compete in this one because she was debuting here in this pageant as Mrs. Hayes County. But Lori did not go on to win Mrs. Texas Beauty Pageant. She did, however, win something else earlier that year. This same year, 2004, Lori also competed on Will of Fortune, where she won $17,000. Oh, wow. (laughs) Like, what? I wonder how she got on. She just... So it sounds like she had to audition. So Lori actually told her husband, Joe, that God came to her and told her that she was going to be on Will of Fortune. And that's why she decided to audition. Nice. Which like... And and she won (laughs) $17,000. And she won. I don't know if God is pointing everyone in the direction to go win money, but (laughs) whatever. Whatever makes her feel good about it. I mean, she did win $17,000, so I guess it was the right decision. She knew she was going to be on there. (laughs) She probably just wanted to be on there, so... So she used it as an excuse. That's what I think, but... I guess we'll never know because we are not Lori. And then while Lori is on the show, she says, quote, I have a wonderful husband, Joseph, at home who is watching our two beautiful children, Colby, who is seven and Tylee, who is one. We like to play all sorts of sports on our three acres, end quote. Now, it's also this same year, 2004, that Lori petitions for divorce on August 13th, 2004, just two months after the pageant. The couple had been married for about three years at this point. Joe's response to the petition included comments that the divorce was abrupt. I don't think Joe saw this coming, but if Lori wanted to be divorced, then okay. What can he do about it? So the couple splits and within the first year, Lori gets married to her fourth husband in 2006. This is Charles Vallow. 
His full name is Leyland Charles Anthony Vallow, and he was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana on August 17, 1956. So he is 17 years older than Lori, just a couple years older than Joseph Ryan. And I think he definitely had money. He, yes, I do think that he did. Now, Lori is already married to Charles Vallow when she decides to file a complaint against her ex-husband, Joe Ryan. This complaint alleges that Joe was harassing Lori at her place of employment and that Joe was making death threats. These threats are alleged to be directed at her new husband, Charles, and her son, Colby. Lori claims that Joe had threatened to chop her up into little pieces and that he threatened to stab her with a knife. Through their divorce, Lori was also claiming that Joseph Ryan was sexually abusing both Colby and Tylee. Colby still says in interviews to this day that he was sexually abused by Joseph Ryan. And I can't discount his memory of that. That is absolutely horrible and traumatic, and if my child was going through that, I would absolutely fight hard for them to not go with him again. Now, Joe was ordered to undergo a psychosexual exam, and his visits with Tylee were ordered to be supervised at the kids' exchange. If Joe was found to be low to no risk after the exam, then the visits would return to the normal custodial agreement that they had set in their divorce decree. Which, okay, yes, but how about not low to no risk? How about just if there's absolutely no risk? Like, don't send them around someone who has a low risk of sexually abusing Mm, them. Right. How about no risk? But with all of this, a temporary order was put in place on December 4th, 2006 to deny Joe physical access to Tylee until after trial and was only permitted phone calls with her. One month after this, Lori files another motion requesting a forensic analysis of Joe Ryan's computer. She was accusing him of visiting child pornography websites and that he was a sexual abuser. Now, these claims are scary, and like I said, Colby's account of his childhood does need to be considered. As time went on, the therapists and investigators got into the nitty-gritty of these claims, and they were all found to be unsubstantiated. There is a document where it is stated that Leslie Smith, Tylee's therapist who is helping investigate the allegation, writes that she raised concerns about the level of trauma Tylee was experiencing through all this conflict. But she said Tylee appears to be resilient and happy about the visits with her father. At that time, there were concerns raised regarding Tylee's mom, Lori, misrepresenting information primarily regarding Tylee's medical intake forms. Leslie Smith reported Tylee as being happy about those visits and that she wanted to continue doing the visits during their last session. But then at the very end of that visit, Tylee adds in one more detail about how she's scared of overnights. And her therapist, Leslie, asks why. And Tylee says, because Joe molested me and Colby. Soon after this statement is made, Lori walks into the session to pick Tylee up. 
And Tylee looks at her mom, Lori, and says, quote, I told her, end quote. That makes me think that Lori may have told Tylee what to say. Because on one hand, she's saying she wants to keep doing visits with her dad. And then on the other hand, she's saying that he did these things to her. But then he, she tells her mom, I told her. I know. It, it's confusing. It is. And so, you know, we don't know what the truth is. But there was a social worker on the case. And she said that Lori told her over and over again that, quote, death would be an option before giving Tylee to her father, end quote. And again, more insight and foresight into what Lori would do and become. This worker believed Lori was a danger and a flight risk. During another evaluation, she said, quote, Miss Vallow genuinely believes her child is in danger. However, her belief system is riddled with ghosts and seemingly fanatical religious dogma. End quote. I don't know what dogma means, but. Oh my gosh. Like all of this stuff that comes into play later on, this was all in Lori's mind already. Yeah. Can you imagine too if you were the dad? being like falsely accused oh that would be absolutely horrible as well i know like that's the worst thing you could be accused of right sexually abusing your children yes it's like (sighs) geez why does she keep choosing these terrible men (laughs) are they really i know are they really or is it you like what's the common denominator in this her yeah It's just like, I honestly feel bad for Joe as long as he didn't sexually abuse them. Because if he did, I would also not want my kids around him. But like I said, the court system did find the claims unsubstantiated. They were investigated. And there's no proof that Joe did anything ever to his children. Except for Colby says. Except for Colby says that that did happen. So, But how old would he have been? During that time? He was seven, uh, almost eight, maybe eight, right around when they got divorced. So he was, he, Joe was in his life from the time he was about five years old to eight years old. Because it's like, did your mom just tell you those stories? So you believe it? I know. I mean, obviously we wouldn't think that he's doing this. Yeah. We would obviously believe the kids in this situation, but we know the end of the story. Right. You know, so if like the end of the story didn't happen, yeah. then we would be thinking, oh yeah, they for sure did it. Oh, for sure. Like you always believe the children and all of that. So I I just know Lori is a master manipulator. I don't want to take that away from Colby. So I'm just kind of like stuck in this gray area. Of like, I don't know. Now, I found this so weird. When they got divorced, in their divorce, it was put in there that Joe would pay Lori $1,500 a month for child support. That's fine. That's great. But also that he had to buy an insurance, a life insurance for $350,000 and that the beneficiary had to be Lori. <laughs> so That was in their divorce. Like, he had to do that as a part of their divorce, which, like, no, no. I don't think that's uncommon. 
like Shannon had to do it too. Are you kidding? Yeah, he he's had to have a million dollar life insurance policy. Okay, what what keeps um that ex from killing them to get their life insurance? <laughs> They're obviously more valuable to them dead. <laughs> Yeah, that seems like true. a dangerous thing to but do. It's like if something happens to them, then the kids are covered. Oh, I know. Yes, which I agree. But it's like, can we put it like not in the mom's name? Can we put it like solely in the kid's name and they like get it like when they're older or like obviously not because they want the kids taken care of while they grow up. But that just seems dangerous. And I mean, especially in this situation. But yeah, we've had to have that. Still, oh. we have it. I did not think that was common. Mm-hmm. I hate that. But like, I like it for the kids. <laughs> I don't. I hate it because my mind is. You're like, that is so weird. I'm like, like, that's I mean, normal. That's what, I think it's weird. pretty common. That just freaks me out that the people with the life insurance policy is going to get killed by their ex who doesn't even care about them anymore. <laughs> like if they're not going to be with them, that freaks me out. But I guess I haven't heard a ton of stories about it, so I guess it's not a problem. <laughs> Except here, in this story. So, this fight between Joe and Lori would continue on for years. And on March 25th, 2007, Joe Ryan's attorney files a motion. This motion was to compel physiological evaluations for persons affecting the parent-child relationship. The motion asked to have Colby, Lori, and Charles evaluated. Joe filed a second time on April 25th, 2007. He filed a first amended petition to modify parent-child relationships and alternatively motion for enforcement of possession and access and motion for temporary and permanent injunctions. With this, he stated that Lori had a history of child neglect and physical and psychological abuse directed at Tylee. Joe wanted Lori denied access or possession of child and for her to only have supervised visits with a supervisor chosen by the court. Joe states that he believes Lori may violate court orders and wants the court to deem Lori as a risk for international abduction of a minor. The worker that suggested the psychological exams was Tom War, Ware, who was a guardian ad litem, which is basically a person who was appointed by the family court to represent a child during a custody battle. I think it is an ad litium. Is it a guardian ad litium? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what he was. All of this is really showing me signs of that Lori's insanity and evil were presenting themselves way back then. Like I said earlier, she was scary. And I think Joe was the first one to see it and to stand up against her and fight her for the safety of his child. And it's truly heartbreaking that he was failed because ultimately we know he does not protect or he could not protect Tylee from her own mom. Right. And like the things he says in there, like, again, more foresight into what Lori becomes and what she does. So I really kind of believe this. And where he's saying that he wants evaluations for people affecting the parent child relationship, it does sound like 
Lori was manipulating Tylee into maybe not liking her dad. You know, doing those things like telling them bad things about their dad and things that you really shouldn't do when you're co-parenting. Right. And that's really sad because Lori... It is. That just messes the kids up. Yeah. And Lori, I don't think, had Tylee's best interest in mind because, as we'll see, Lori clearly didn't care about Tylee the way she was letting on. Lori's out for Lori. Yep. Now, the day after Joe filed this motion, Lori, of of course, filed her own to have Tom War fired because she claims that he failed his duties when interviewing different members of their family the first time around. She also claimed that he failed to correctly obtain Tylee's medical records. Obviously, this is pretty clear that Lori only filed a complaint against Tom because he recommended psychological evaluations. Multiple people that worked on this case saw red flags with Lori. But somehow, through all of this, she was able to maintain custody of Tylee. Like I said, this battle would continue on for years. During one custody exchange, Lori's brother attacked Joe Ryan. It was August 5th, 2007, the same year that Joe and Lori are filing these motions back and forth. Joe Ryan was sitting in the parking lot waiting for his daughter, Tylee, to arrive for drop-off. All of a sudden, Lori's oldest brother, Alex Cox, shows up. He asks Joe if he remembers him and tells Joe they need to have a talk. At this point, Alex thinks that Joe is a pedophile because that is what his beloved sister Lori told him. Alex reaches into his coat and pulls out an object, and Joe starts running. He thinks it's a gun, and immediately his heart starts racing, and his life flashes in front of his face. What is happening? As Joe starts running, he feels this shock to his shoulder and then on his back. It wasn't a gun that Alex pulled out. It was a stun gun. While Joe fell to the ground, Alex looks at him and threatens to kill him. Joe pushes Alex away as he gets up and he starts to run again. And Alex is not giving up. He starts running after him. At this point, Joe is panicking. Why is he chasing me? And then, thankfully, Joe runs into a witness walking down the road. This witness sees Alex and specifically sees the stun gun, causing Alex to give up his pursuit. He puts the stun gun away and he walks off. The following day, Joe was experiencing unbearable pain. He went to the hospital with chest and neck pain as well as wrist pain. Joe ended up having a fractured wrist from the fall and he decided to report the attack to the police. During his report, he states that he is in fear for his life. Uh, yeah, I would be in fear for my life too. <laughs> yeah, some crazy guy came. Like your ex-brother-in-law freaking comes up with a stun gun and he's like, I'm going to kill you. And then you're like running from him and he's freaking chasing you. Attacking you. Like, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. That's scary. And as we'll see, like Alex really does have an evil of his own that lived inside of him. Yeah. Lori and Alex shared this and it made their bond inseparable. Well, at least until Lori no longer needed him. 
Alex was sentenced to three months in jail after pleading guilty to aggravated assault and afterwards he was put on probation and ordered to pay $5,000 in restitution to Joe Ryan. This is another eerie foresight into what would come. And unfortunately, this is where we are going to end this episode. With Lori's fourth husband, the murders start and we are going to dive into Lori's fourth and fifth husband next time, as well as all the murders and the deaths that surround Lori. Today's episode really was just a glimpse of the beginning to a very bizarre story. My mom told me that you guys were talking about Rexford, Iowa. They're just one little town between us and Rexburg. And that town is called Rigby. Did you know the TV was invented in Rigby? It's called the birthplace of television. I love TV. Rigby was the town that Philo... T. Farnsworth lived, and he's the one who invented television. My mom and dad watch television when they go to bed. Bye. Have a good day. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends and onto your social media. We would love it if you helped us continue to make this podcast by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. I will literally be obsessed with you if you don't have Apple Podcasts. Seriously, like take a video or take a screenshot of the episode you're listening to or post your favorite episode and share it on your story so that all your friends see it. That is the other thing you can do that will really help us continue to make this show. If you have any case suggestions or stories of your own, email them to me at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. Follow us on social media for pictures and information on each case we cover. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimexpod, truecrime, E-X-P-O-D, and you can find us on TikTok at truecrimeexposedpodcast, just all spelled out. This podcast is written, hosted, researched, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom, Alicia Jenkins. The palate cleanser is given to us by my daughter, Charlie Waters. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Stick around if you want to hear about the organization that you can donate to today. I'm sure you guys have heard of this organization. It's called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's an organization that is a part of a ton of cases 
they do such good work. If you go to missingkids.org, you can click donate. You can also buy merch from them that will help their cause. And they say that it also shows that you stand in solidarity with victims and their families, which is so important. That's what we are all about. So join their family of volunteers that are dedicated to finding missing kids and preventing the exploitation and preventing the exploitation of children and keeping kids safe. I really, really want to become a volunteer with them. I'm totally going to be looking into this because this organization is seriously amazing. I hear about it all the time. So if you go to missingkids.org, you can find all the info you need to on this. 